So we are continuing roaming through Zechariah. And if this is your first time here or you're not familiar with what we're doing, you may say, why? Why are we doing that? You know, these prophetic books are not easy to understand and to grasp, and that's true. But there's such a value in studying the Old Testament and especially the prophets. Think about the fact that before the time of Jesus, for 2,000 years, pretty close, give or take, God had formed a people, a nation, and was working with them. That's a long time. And so the Old Testament and the prophetic books are this, this rich resource to us as believers about God himself. How does he think? What's important to him? How does he act? And since God communicated primarily through the prophets, uh, these prophetic books, as difficult as they may be at times to understand, are just a rich resource for us. And I've been comparing the prophetic books a little bit to art. And I think that's a helpful way for us to think about it. It isn't like science or math where we can find exact connections and relationships all the time. Sometimes, yes. But when you look at a work of art or you're listening to poetry, you're listening in a certain way. There's images, there's metaphors, there's things that are coming forth from that. And that's how God speaks. Why does he do that? Why is God so vague in these prophetic books? Paul tells us that because he didn't want the enemy, the powers of darkness, to understand his plan. Otherwise, they never would have crucified Jesus. So there's a reason for this vagueness, but there's still so much that we can gain. So in Zechariah chapter 10... We have um, God dealing with a question that's on the mind of everybody that was in this group of exiles that had returned. Remember the setting of Zechariah, okay? 70 years before, Israel had been kicked out of their territory. The Babylonians had come in. The place was desolate. And now there was a returning group that was coming back to Jerusalem and Judea, the surrounding area. And so... It's desolate. It's not like nice little farms and everything. There's not much there. And so the people are wondering the same thing you or I would wonder. Are we going to survive? Is my family going to be okay? Are we going to be safe? And so chapter 10 starts out dealing with that. Um, And so we're going to see in this chapter God working at two different levels. There is the physical provision that we all need, and God never forgets that. Think about how Jesus healed people, and minister to their physical needs. God never forgets that. But also, we're going to see some language in chapter 10 that points to another whole level, a deeper fulfillment, a deeper kind of provision, the provision of redemption, and a Messiah. So let's uh, pray and begin with verse 1. Lord, We are so honored to study your word together. Thank you for the richness that's here. I know that you have a message for each one of us. I know you have words to say to us. You have things to speak to us about through your word, and I pray that you would accomplish that. I pray for the fullness of your Holy Spirit in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So Zechariah 10.1, ask rain from the Lord at the time of the spring rain, the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain, vegetation in the field to each man. This is what I was talking about, that the place is desolate. Are we going to survive? We left Babylon to come back here to Jerusalem and Judea. Are we going to make it? So God, in this word from Zechariah, is speaking about the here and the now. He's not speaking about like the distant future. He's saying at the time of the spring rain, ask rain. So pray. Look to the Lord for provision. The people are instructed to ask. And doesn't this remind you a little bit of the Lord's prayer? Give us this day our daily bread. The provision, at the t- notice it says at the time of the spring rain, ask rain from the Lord. And so what is God's response? There is an assurance of provision here, right? He will give them showers of rain. God will provide. He will provide vegetation. There will be food for you. Have you ever wondered why God wants to be involved in providing for the physical needs of people? You ever thought about that? From the beginning, right? Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve sinned, and God told them the consequences that were going to happen, what was the very next thing he did? He provided for them. He provided clothing from animal skins. And so you have what I'm talking about here, this double level of physical provision for them. They needed clothing. But in order to make that clothing, God had to shed the blood of animals to provide a covering for them. A theme that keeps going in Scripture. Manna in the wilderness, God's provision. You couldn't collect three days' worth of manna. You could only collect it for one day. Otherwise, it was going to go bad. What was God teaching them about his provision, about this dependency? Physical provision for us as a part of God's people is very, very important to him. I don't know that we really understand that properly. Why? Well, think about those of you that have children. You provide for them. Do you resent that? (laughs) That kid's eating an awful lot. I gotta buy clothing for that kid again? No. You love your children. They're yours. And it's there's something wonderful about being able to provide for someone that you love. You show them how well you're going to take care of them. You work hard for them. Think about how much parents sacrifice sometimes for children's education or whatever. Provision is a demonstration of love. And I think we need to understand that about God's physical provision for us in this world. It is a demonstration of love. It's a beautiful thing. It's it's something that he wants. Okay, verse two. There we go. It seems like he's taking a left turn here. He says, for the, for the teraphim speak iniquity and the diviners see lying visions and tell us false dreams they comfort in vain. It sounds like the subject just changed. 
But the translators put in this word for. Do you see that? The first word there is for. That isn't in the Hebrew. The translators put that in because there's a connection between these ideas in the two, in the two verses. For the teraphim speak iniquity. What are the teraphim? Well, teraphim is one of those Hebrew words that just gets sort of plunked in our version of the Bible. It's a transliteration. So it just simply refers to household idols. And we have to understand that at that time, it was common in Mesopotamia and that area for, for in the pagan households for them to have household idols. Well, why would you have household idols? Well, for the same things we were just talking about. People want something to turn to for personal safety, for provision. The diviners, it says, see lying visions that tell false dreams. What are diviners? They're fortune tellers. We still have those around today. Why do people go there? They want to know if they're going to be okay. They want to know if the future is going to be okay for them. And so Israel was picking up these pagan practices from the people around them. And they were turning to household idols. So you can see the connection between these verses. God is saying, don't trust that. Don't trust in those idols. Trust me. Believe in me. Ask me for your provision and I will give it to you. And I guess it raises the question for us, what are we really trusting in, right? Same question. Are we really seeing that God is providing for our physical needs? Are we really seeing God as our provider? That's the relationship that he wants. He wants us to ask him for these things. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted because there's no shepherd. My anger is kindled against the shepherds, and I will punish the male goats. Well, are we switching subjects now? No. See the word therefore? There's another connection, okay? It connects us back. The empty worship of idols and trusting in fortune tellers leads to affliction and suffering. Think about it. Who is ever going to have peace through that? Look at the things that people are turning to today to try to find peace and security. Does it ever work? <laughs> no. No, they're afflicted. Why? Because there's no shepherd. There's a leadership problem. With bad leadership, people have a tendency to wander into trouble and affliction. And God says, I'm going to hold these leaders accountable. My anger is kindled against the shepherds. Israel had a history of leadership problems. If you look at their history, it's just a tragic series of bad leaders and bad leadership decisions with a few good ones sprinkled in, but the majority were pretty bad. Next week, in fact, chapter 11, we're going to talk about this more. It's all about good and bad leadership, good and bad shepherding. So that's going to come up next week in chapter 11 in a little more detail. Verse 3, for the Lord of hosts has visited his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic horse in battle. From them will come the cornerstone, from them the tent peg, from them the bow of battle, from them every ruler, all of them together. So something's going on here. God 
is visiting his people. He says he's visited his flock. God has arrived on the scene himself in the midst of this poor leadership and the people wandering and the sheep sort of scattered around. God is visiting them. And what's going to happen? He's going to transform Judah from being like a bunch of lost sheep wandering around to a majestic horse in battle. That's a pretty good transformation. (laughs) To go from a wandering lost sheep to a majestic battle horse, that's not too bad. And that's coming through the presence of God. Well, how's God going to do that? How's that going to happen? Well, this second part, there are some poetic images about new leadership coming forth from Judah. Look at what it says. From them, meaning from Judah, will come the cornerstone. From them, Judah, the tent peg. From them, the bow of battle. From them, every ruler, all of them together. So God is going to do something incredible and special through Judah. And this language is unmistakably messianic language. Remember that the prophets didn't prophesy in a vacuum. There were hundreds of years of prophecies. And so especially this word cornerstone had a very rich tradition in the prophetic books. In Psalm 118, remember that verse? Jesus spoke about, used that verse speaking about himself to his enemies. He said, the stone that the builders rejected has become what? the chief cornerstone. And then, not only in in, uh, Psalms, but Isaiah 28, another example of this word being used in a messianic context. Isaiah 28, 16, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed, And notice this, he who believes in it will not be disturbed. He who believes in the cornerstone will not be disturbed. So Zechariah is giving us this poetic language talking about leadership, talking about new leadership coming forth from the tribe of Judah, the cornerstone, the tent peg, the bow of battle. In fact, the Jewish people at Jesus' time were expecting a military Messiah, weren't they? So God is going to use Judah as his own battle horse to produce a new foundation of leadership. That's kind of the the view of these first few verses. So now, the second half of chapter 10, it's very interesting. There are these circular references that keep coming up at the end the second part of this chapter to God regathering his people. So let's take a look at verse 6. I will strengthen the house of Judah and I will save the house of Joseph and I will bring them back. This is that first reference to a regathering. Because I have had compassion on them, and they will be as though I had not rejected them, for I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. So notice the number of times in this verse that you see I will. I will, I will, I will. There's, I don't know, five of them. God's future promises, what he's going to do. And one of the remarkable things about this verse is that he talks about the house of Joseph. You know, the house of Joseph um, is a sad story. Joseph was a great man, but his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, 
became tribes of Israel. And they broke away with, with eight other tribes. So 10 tribes broke away from Israel after Solomon's death. They broke away and formed the northern kingdom. And that northern kingdom, if you read the history of it, is just sad. From the beginning, they just turned their back on God. The king at the time was Jeroboam. It was his opportunity to lead this northern kingdom. And what did he do right away? He built two idolatrous centers of worship, one in the south and one in the north. He didn't want his people going to Jerusalem, to the southern kingdom to worship. So he sets up these idolatrous centers. So that was the beginning of just a bad uh, array of leadership problems and the people consistently being led astray from the Lord. That northern kingdom was, was overrun by the Assyrians in 722 BC. So a couple hundred years before Zechariah's time, the northern kingdom was almost obliterated. And you know during Jesus' time, the stories about the Samaritans, right? Well, Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. And so it just became this mixed race place that the Jewish people felt these aren't really our people. That was the northern kingdom. But look at what it says here. I will save the house of Joseph. I'll bring him back because I've had compassion on them. And so it just makes me think about how many times people think, yeah, but God really can't forgive me. I've done stuff wrong. I've made mistakes. Well, what about the house of Joseph? I can't, it's hard to think of one thing they did right. And yet God in his compassion and love says, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to forget about them. And so if you're far away from God and you think, oh, I can't, I can't, God hasn't forgotten about you. And he's ready to receive you. So in Israel's history, there was these cycles of scattering and regathering. <clears throat> I hadn't really realized this until I was studying this stuff and preparing, but do you know that after Jesus' time, okay, when Jesus was here, Israel was sort of like a nation, right? They weren't a sovereign nation. Rome was over them, but they were somewhat of a nation. Do you know that they were scattered again? The Jewish-Roman wars from 70 AD or from 65 AD to 136, there was like three uh, war, uh, big wars in, in a sequence, and at the end, the Jewish people were uh, scattered and obliterated. For the most, I mean, there were still some around, but the same thing—they were just scattered. It was devastating. It's a, it's a tragic history. So here we are in Zechariah's time, where the Jewish people are coming back to Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple, but. Eventually, they were going to be scattered again. And so in this passage, we're going to see in chapter 10, God is recalling the people. I'm going to gather them back. I'm going to gather them back. But there's something else going on. We're going to see this. There is a spiritual language that begins to get injected into this passage that isn't just I'm going to physically gather them back, but I'm going to spiritually unite with my people from all over. I'm going to gather them back. So let's look at that. 
in verses 7 and 8. Ephraim will be like a mighty man, and their heart will be glad as if from wine. Indeed, their children will see it and be glad. Their heart will rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them to gather them together. Isn't that a cool statement? I'll whistle for them to gather them together, for I have redeemed them, and they will be as numerous as they were before. So there's these two levels going on of God you know, regathering his people, but look at the language. The hearts of the children of Ephraim will rejoice in the Lord? There's a spiritual connection here. I have redeemed them. So this concept, this theme of redemption is such a powerful theme throughout Scripture. And again, Zechariah is using this word, I have redeemed the people. And there is, it, this same word shows up in the other prophets. Let's take a look at Isaiah chapter 35. This is a, a really beautiful word, use of this concept of what does it mean to be redeemed. So in Isaiah 35, Isaiah is talking about a regathering, but he's using a different image. There's a highway, he says, that's going to lead to Zion. It's called the Highway of Holiness. And there's people walking on it. So let's pick up in verse 9. No lion will be there. In other words, there's no lions on this highway, nor will any vicious beast go up on it. These will not be found there. But what? The redeemed will walk there. This is the prophetic tradition in this word. And the ransomed of the Lord will return. Those are the same word, redeemed and ransomed are the same Hebrew word. The ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. This isn't just a physical regathering of people. There is, this redeeming is a joyful love relationship with God. So that's another level that's going on. So God is talking not just about his people physically, but he's talking about his people that he's redeeming, his people that he's purchasing, his people that he wants to have this joyful love relationship with. And so you know what? If you're following Jesus today, you're on Isaiah's road. You're on the highway that's leading to God, that's leading to Zion. And look at the result at the end. Everlasting joy on their heads. Finding gladness and joy. Sorrow and sighing will flee away. I can't think of a more beautiful picture of where we're going. And then the last two verses of chapter 10. <clears throat> they will pass through the sea of distress and he will strike the waves in the sea so that all the depths of the Nile will dry up. The pride of Assyria will be brought down and the scepter of Egypt, Egypt will depart. And I will strengthen them in the Lord and in his name they will walk. So there we have another one of these spiritual references. It's more than just a physical regathering. There is a strengthening in Jesus in the Lord, I should say, and in his name they will walk. So this other indication of a spiritual regathering. So this verse shows how after much distress aimed against God's people. God is going to step in. The prideful worldly powers, Assyria and Egypt symbolically here, will fall, will be brought down. And God will strengthen them in his name. And what does that really mean? Being strengthened in the name of the Lord. You know, um, loyalty and love 
are so important to the Lord in our relationship with him. A loyal love. That's what he's looking for. That's what he was looking for from Israel. And so God's people, those who love him, who follow him, who walk with him, are showing this loyal love. And this is what he's gathering. So, so as I've said before, the prophetic words sometimes operate in two different timelines or multiple timelines at the same time. And this is kind of the way this one works, is that there's the physical regatherings of Israel, but there is a spiritual gathering in his name of people that are loyally in love with God. So how do we apply this? Like, what can we think about in our own lives that will help us in our walk with with Jesus? Well, the two things that were sort of in the title of this message, God as our provider. Am I really connected with that? You know, in our culture, we kind of disconnected from the idea that God is our provider. There's so many unlike ancient people that were one season away from starvation, we have so many buffers in our lives and we forget. And God wants us to see him as our provider. And we need to see that this provision from him is it's not only something he desires, but it is, a, it is an expression of his love. When he provides for you and me, Physically, it's an expression of his love. And so we can receive it that way. And what does that evoke from us? It's a a spirit of gratitude. A posture of gratitude. You know, if gratitude and thanksgiving is the foundation of your walk with the Lord, it is very, very strong. Some of the happiest people I've ever met are people that have learned that lesson and that truly thank God every day for the things that he's doing, that bless the name of God for the things that are happening. In the midst of even difficult times, they're looking for things to thank God for, for providing for them. It's a very, very powerful thing to cultivate in our lives, this spirit of gratitude. It is a trust. It's a belief in the goodness of God. And you know what else? Gratitude drives out fear. If you're struggling with fear in your life, cultivate gratitude. Think about it. It's impossible to be afraid and fearful and full of gratitude to God at the same time. The two just don't mix. And so gratitude and cultivating that drives out fear. And the root of Gratitude is God as our provider. And then the second part, God is our redeemer. God said through Zechariah in verse 8, I will redeem them. Even the house of Joseph that miserably failed. And what I love about the concept of redemption is, you know, one way to think about it is that redemption is the process of salvation, but it's from God's viewpoint, not from ours. You know, in our sort of modern evangelical culture and leading people to faith, uh, you know, as we lead people to faith, very often we're only presenting the gospel from the human side, okay? 
people uh, are sinful. We need forgiveness in our lives. Jesus, through his death on the cross, paid the full penalty for our sins. And so by believing in him and receiving that, we receive his forgiveness. We receive his Holy Spirit. We enter into a relationship with him. We receive the gift of eternal life and so forth. All of that is true and all that's very, very important. But that is all from our side. Redemption lets us see salvation from God's side. I have redeemed them. I will redeem them. God is reaching out to people. God is the one who has paid the price. God is the one who has done this. And so we are receiving and accepting, but he is the initiator we are the responder. He has made a way for us, and so we can choose to, to receive that. But, it's, it, but he has made a way. And what I, what I love about thinking this way is that the foundation of salvation, the foundation of our relationship with God is love. The greatest commandment. What a provision that God would sacrifice himself for us. Do you know that the true core of salvation, the true core of what has happened to us that have come to faith in Jesus Christ is love? That love relationship from God that said, I'm going to find them. I'm going to intervene. They've got leadership problems. I'm going to come myself and I'm going to make a way for them. And you know, when you receive Jesus Christ from that perspective, what happens is that you love him. <laughs> You're grateful. You say, thank you for doing this for me. It isn't just a cold transaction. You see it from his side and what he has paid and what he has done to make it possible for us. So, so as I said at the beginning, <clears throat> these Old Testament passages are so rich in giving us dimensions of our understanding of God that allow us to walk with him. So I just want to encourage you this week, think about God as your provider. Think about the connection with him as your provider. And then think about him from the side of what he has done to redeem us, that that was his initiative out of love. Do you have a warm, affectionate relationship with God? Do you know that should be our goal in life? To have warmth, not just a clinical, oh yeah, I was saved on such and such a day. Warmth and love. This is the core of our relationship with God. It's what he wants. And it is the sign of a healthy believer when we have that. So let's pray together and ask God to build that into our lives. Father, Thank you for the power of your word. Thank you that it just touches not just our mind, but our heart, our emotions, our will. And Lord, we want to be a people that love you. We want to be a body that doesn't just talk about you, but that lives out your love, that we are the hands and feet of Jesus to people that we know, that we work with, that we are representing you and who you are. And most of all, Lord, that day by day, our love for you as our provider and our redeemer would grow. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.